I hope everyone's uh, doing well. And if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. And Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter 7. So with that, however, we do have a lot to do. We have a lot of ground to cover. So buckle up, strap in. Here we go. Uh, we're going to take just a few moments to recap because uh, we're starting in a middle of a chapter. And last week we paused from Ezra last week. Um, if you might remember, between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there was a 50-year gap in, uh, of history uh, between chapter 6 and 7, right? Chapters 1 through 6 has been, was predominantly about the rebuilding of the temple, right? God's people going back into the land, this first group going back into the land, being let, allowed back through Cyrus and blessed by them, by him, and then them, uh, the opposition they face and the rebuilding in the temple. However, now that the temple's been rebuilt, we saw some great things in chapter 6. They celebrated the feasts and Passover. Uh, the, the prophets over there were, were preaching. However, over those 50 years, it had not been rainbows and lollipops in the land of Israel. Leadership in Israel, as we know throughout the Bible, is always lacking. It's always small. It's, 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 it shines like light. I mean, just bright like a spotlight when it shows up in the Old Testament. But oftentimes it's complete darkness. They had some good leaders such as Moses and Joshua and David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, and more. And they fell tremendously under bad leaders. Hence why they were in exile, in captivity. The first group of returning exiles had Jeshua and Zerubbabel. But now in chapter 7, as we saw a couple weeks ago, the Lord has raised up a man named Ezra. Hence the name of the book, Ezra. Then this guy, he had all the lineage that he needed to be the high priest, to have this kind of priestly teaching authority in Israel. He was a scribe skilled in the law in the Moses. He had position and favor in Persia. But most importantly, from verse 10, we see his passion. We see his heart's desire, and that is what? Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it, to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That was Ezra's heart, his desire, and his passion. That sets up us for us now as this next group of exiles is now going back into the land. So as we read this, which there's a lot, of, a lot for us to read, uh, I want you to listen for a couple things. And it'll help, help you understand the rest of the message this morning. First, we're going to start off by reading a letter from a secular pagan king, King Artaxerxes. And I want you to listen for all the ways that this pagan secular king gives favor and blessing and authority to Ezra and Israel. So that's the first thing I want you to listen to. And there's, there's quite a bit there. The second, I want you to keep in mind, once again, as I've already told you, that this letter was not written by King David. It wasn't written by King Solomon. It was written by a pagan secular 
king, a, a king of the, of the world. And take note and ask yourself maybe the question, why would Ezra put this letter in this book? What, what, what is he, why does he put it in there? Why does he want it in this book? And lastly, at the end, I want you to listen very closely to Ezra's response. Ezra's response to this letter from the king. How he responds and who he responds to. Let's look at Ezra chapter 7 and we'll read together starting in verse 11. Verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord in his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the law of God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel, of their priests or Levites in my kingdom, who freely offers to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem." With all the silver and the gold that the people and the priests vowed willingly for the houses of their God that is in Jerusalem, with this money you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, lambs, and their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given to you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem, that whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the provinces beyond the river, Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests of the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges, and may, de, may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as we know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of your king, 
Let judgment be strictly ex executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for the confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Pretty amazing letter from King Artaxerxes, isn't it? There is this overwhelming abundance in provision, wealth, and authority, power, and protection, and position that this king bestows upon Israel and the people, the people of Israel and Ezra. But what was it? Why would such a secular king give so much to this conquered Jewish exiled people? Why? Why would he give them so much favor, so much blessing, and so much authority? Like if they don't listen to you according to God's word, yeah, you can behead them. Put them in prison. Artaxerxes certainly had his reasons. I think his reasons were, were probably spiritual. Meaning, meaning he wanted the blessings of God, of is the God of Israel, and so he lavished goods on God's people for the worship of the temple in order to receive then, see, I'm being good to your people, so you bless me and be good to me. I think it was also political. Ezra was an honorable man who he could trust, and he needed a good, strong trustworthy leader in the region. He has proven himself to be a strong, trustworthy, courageous, and skilled leader. I think the king was being wise. Ezra would maintain through his skills and his relationship and relationships and intellects and abilities, he would maintain all the things that the king would want him to do. I think also he was being wise geopolitically. Because history tells us that a few years earlier, there was an e Egyptian revolt within the kingdom. And that had massive cost to the Persians. They lost the city of Memphis to the Athenians. And when the Persians recaptured the city, it came at some very serious cost to the kingdom. So no wonder then Artaxerxes had some motives that were more than spiritual so that there would be blessings in that land for him to be able to know what's happening there. So he appointed a law-abiding, God-fearing man 
to lead this area to bring about stabilization to that region. Now, as helpful as it is for us to understand the history of what's happening in the world, world history and such, we also read this text, and we must read it through the, through the lenses of the scripture. History and wisdom and politics are important, and they're good or terrible. But more importantly, we understand this letter through the lenses of the scripture. Remember, Ezra put this letter in here intentionally. You know, one of the major themes that we have seen throughout Ezra, every single time we have talked about a king, Cyrus, Arhas, Artaxerxes, and Darius. Every time we've talked about them, we've always been amazed by the exact same thing over and over and over. Is that is the overwhelming, mighty hand of God sovereignly working out to bring about his will, the fulfillment of his promises to bring his people back to the land and to restore his people. And how we've seen God's faithfulness to protect his people, to provide for his people, to give them resources, and to raise up leaders for them. And ultimately, we see in all of those things the fulfillment of Christ in all of it. And all of these things are just little pieces, little typologies of Christ. Christ is going to fulfill all of these. So overwhelmingly in Ezra, we have seen with all of these lesser kings, God's decree being supreme over all of them. Every single time. Artaxerxes, to him, he was doing these for all the reasons for, for him and what we have seen. But what we know from Scripture is that the Lord has decreed. And his will will be done for the good of his people and for his glory. No matter what, no matter what, God's decree will always happen. And he's always working these things for his glory, for our joy, and for the good of his people. So we not only learn about the power and the sovereignty of our king, the real king of kings, we see of his character to fulfill his promises for the good of his people, for the, his glory. But the knowledge and the experience of our Lord then does what? Well, we see what it does to Ezra. It drives him to gratitude. Heart and hearts overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratitude to the Lord. For weeks now, we've been in Ezra for the beginning of August, and we've talked a lot about God's providence and God's divine decree and his sovereignty. We've talked about his, his word. But we haven't talked very much about our response to it, except for maybe our obedience and our teaching about it. But we've, we've talked a little bit about it. But this morning, I want us to hone in on, after we unpack this letter, is Ezra's response. And Ezra's response is a response of sheer gratitude to the Lord. Because once again, Ezra is seeing the fulfillment of God's promises in his word. Isaiah 60, we read it this morning. That the wealth of the nations will be brought back and given to you. And that your house would be beautified. 
by the foreign kings. This letter from Artaxerxes, and it's directly addressed to Ezra, it's split up, I think, by his two decrees. The first beginning in verse 13, and the second is in verse 21. In the first decree, you ever take a drip, sip of water and just like, darn, that's good. <laughs> that just happened. Like, it was just like dry mouth in a weary land. In the first decree, the king is stating right from the onset that whoever wants to go back to Jerusalem out of exile, you are free to go. It's like a second release of people that want to go back with Ezra. Verse 14 says, For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem, speaking to the law, excuse me, according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. He had the word, God's word. <laughs> speaking to Ezra, he tells them that you are to be sent back in a sense. You're my man, Ezra. You're my man in Jerusalem and in Judea. You're on a recon mission to gather intelligence to tell me what's happening in the land. But what the king does, he says, but here's what's really important, Ezra. The way that you determine how things are going in the land is by what? By the word of God, by the scriptures, by the, by the law of God that is in your hand, Ezra. The criteria, your measuring stick, your yardstick is what? The Bible. That's what we determine. Again, the authority of how things are going is by the scripture. This is from a secular pagan king. <laughs> That's mind-blowing. That was mind-blowing to me all week. Again, I don't think the king is recognizing the scriptures as being only authoritative religious texts for him. And I don't think he's saying that he's becoming a follower of God, but, but he certainly has come to see the Torah... The word of God, the law of God, as being good, as being lawful, as being helpful to the success of the nations. As the letter progresses in verses 15 through 20, he addresses the financial matters. And this is where we, we just see an overwhelming abundance. 15 and 16, he says that all the gold and silver that has been given by the kings and by his counselors and all the gold and silver that has been given throughout the whole kingdom, all of Babylonia, and also the gold and silver that was given by other Jews who were not coming or not going back to the land, take with you. Take all of this wealth with you. And this was a massive amount of wealth. Verse 17, he tells them, he says, use this massive amount of wealth, this lavished amount of wealth, these funds for what? For the worship of God, for making sacrifices on the altar in the temple. And, and then he says, when there's, if there's anything left over, Ezra, you use it to your discretion according to the will of God. How many times is this secular king going to recognize the authority of the scriptures? 
according to the will of your God. He's telling a devout Jew to be faithful to the scriptures. Perk up. <laughs> Verse 19. Take the vessels that are still left over. Take them to the temple. Use them in worship. And then at the end of the decree in verse 20, he gives him a blank check. A blank check. We, we really don't write too many checks anymore. I can think of two, I think, maybe I write each month these days. One of them is to stick it to my water people because they want to charge me extra to pay online. What a bunch of goons. Right? Come on. So I, this is my theory, I'm going to make them pay someone to open that letter, it's worth my 50 cent stamp and however it costs me. I'm going to pay them to undo it and then take it to their bank to deposit it. <laughs> little, little victories, folks. I haven't won yet, though. We really don't write too many checks. But essentially in verse 20, that's exactly what this king is giving to Ezra. Whatever needs to be done. Whatever you need, because I never want you, Ezra, to think in your mind when an issue comes, when a need arises, how are we going to pay for that? That's the kind of blank check he receives from the king. Imagine the kind of financial freedom personally or for a church. However, there's a small parallel here that I, I want to make with you all, and, and I want us to be careful, of course. This was a pagan, secular king. And we certainly see that he was filled with some religious curiosity. That he was a semi-fearer of God. A respecter of God's word. And he lavished an incredible wealth on them. May I ask you the question this morning, Christians... Do we not serve a king, the king of kings, who not only paid our debts that we could never pay, the debt of sin, but he has also lavished on us something greater than any worldly riches or any blank check we could receive. It's a wealth that will not and cannot ever be burnt up or lost. Ephesians 1 lets us into this grandeur of what God has brought sinners into. In saving them and redeeming them, he says this. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Artaxerxes gave to Ezra and the returning Jews, how? According to the riches that he had. According to the wealth that he had, gold and silver and, and possessions and authority, worldly authorities. But it was a lot. Certainly it was tremendously a lot. But brothers and sisters, I want you to understand how much more God has given to us according to his riches. According to his riches of his grace, 
that he has abounded more and more the forgiveness and redemption. Riches that are unending. Riches that never can be burnt up. It's a wealth and riches that is an eternal inheritance in Christ. Right now, the riches that Artaxerxes gave them cannot be found. But the riches that are in Christ are experienced and found here, still today. God has given us his grace and has abounded us even more and more the lavishes of his eternal life and his mercy and his grace upon us. The second, dec- the second decree, starting in verse 21, it does two things. First, it provides for how Ezra would <coughs> acquire this wealth in the land. And second, the king gives Ezra <coughs> authority to enact, <coughs> to enact God's law in the land. Verse 21 and verse 22 shows us where he is to go and to receive this, this wealth when he gets back to the land if they need more, right? This is how you're cashing in that, that blank check. You go to the treasures of those in the provinces beyond the river. Now, the irony of that earlier in previous generations, it was those who, were, who lived beyond the river that were trying to oppress these people. They were trying to oppress these people in the rebuilding of the temple. And King Darius straightened that one out. But not anyone, but not anymore, these people are now going to have to contribute for the good of the Jewish people. Verse 24, the king even extends to the people what? Tax-free status to those who work in the temple. You work in the temple, you're exempted from taxes. You got tax-free. That's amazing. The second part of that of this decree, verses 25 and 26. What do we see? We see the authority that King Artaxerxes gives Ezra. It's the, the teeth behind this new authority in the land. To appoint judges and magistrates that will bring law and order according to what? The law of God. And if they don't know them, what is he to do? Teach them. Teach them. This has been the language of this king, this whole letter. The scribe of the law of God in heaven, whatever is decreed by the God in heaven, let it be done for the full house, for, be done full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm in the king and his sons. This has been his language this whole time. Clearly, this king is a respecter of God even somewhat of a healthy fear of God as we've talked about. He even affirms somewhat of God's own divine authority. But aren't aren't we seeing that this king is going about it all wrong? 
He's going about it all wrong. Deliverance from the wrath of God is not by the amount of money you give or the amount of sacrifices you make or the works that you bring. It is not based upon behavior, the amount of good you do versus the amount of bad, and as long as it outweighs the other. You see, we also live in a very religious, pagan, secular culture. There are several hundreds and thousands of people that live around us that are respecters of religion. God-fearers, maybe. Particularly Christianity, forms of it, partial parts, parts of it. And they're people just like King Artaxerxes, who have given generously for the Christian causes and ministries. But brothers and sisters, that never can avert the wrath of God from a sinner. Deliverance from God's wrath comes by grace alone to those who seek God according to his word and that forgiveness and peace with God only comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Do you see the distinction? Do, do you see the issue of our culture and many respecters of religion and Christianity, they have the same viewpoints. If I do good for God, as much as it outweighs the bad that I do. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have a much better message for them than to try harder and do better. We have a message of grace. We have a message of peace that ceases striving from oneself and in their sin and puts their faith and trust in Christ alone. The only peace with God that comes through the saving work of Christ. Let's share that kind of message to this world, the true gospel. So here we have this letter where we see in the very first part, we see the abundance of this king, but overwhelmingly we see the abundance of what our king has done for us. And then we see the, the sea striving that we now, the peace that we now have with God because of the work of Christ. And now through faith, we can experience his grace and mercy. It's no gifts that we bring. It's no amount of good that we do, but it's all by the righteousness of Christ that we are saved. How does Ezra respond to this letter? How would any of us respond to such a thing? What would we do or say if a wealthy person came to our church and they gave us $5 million with absolutely no strings attached? This person wasn't looking for a special dispensation or special membership of baptism or a little donated by plaque on some pew. But they feared God and they wanted to give it to us for whatever is appropriate according to God for us to use. 
I think all of us would be pretty amazed. $5 million is a lot of money. We would be overwhelmed. We would be grateful. And we would be thankful to this person, whoever it may be. But we would also be thankful to the Lord. Forever the Lord has provided for us in these, in these ways. And the Lord often does provide through secular sources and secular means for his people. You see, it was God who put into the heart of Artaxerxes to beautify the temple in Jerusalem. The king's heart is a stream of waters in the hands of the Lord, Proverbs 121. He turns it wherever he wills. I hope that verse this morning, brothers and sisters, gives you some encouragement. I hope that helps you to lift your eyes a little bit higher this morning and in the days to come. But let me ask you this question. Where is Jesus in this passage? Where is Jesus in this passage? I'd say that he's right there. He's right there as we just read. He's right there as the one who brought this king to write this letter. You know, our king, he's also a letter-writing king. And the Bible is his letter to us in order that we would understand and know with confidence that our God is in complete control of all things. Of all things, from the beginning to the end, he has determined the future of his people and to accomplish his will for his glory even in these days. And also, he has given us his word that we would enjoy him and that we would be satisfied in him alone. And this is why I think Ezra included this letter. And this is why I think Ezra responded in such a wonderful way as he did with gratitude and thanksgiving to the Lord. Again, I, I'm, I'm sure he sent the reply to the king, thanking the king for his generosity and how some of these things are going to, to work out. But what is vital for us to see is his response was what? Vertical. It was a vertical direction to God, to bless God, to thank the Lord God. And in verse 27, it's even more. He says, we thank the Lord God of what? of our fathers. There's this historical connection that, God, you haven't been just good to me, but you have been good through the ages. You have been gone through the thankful and faithful to the God of, of our people, of our fathers. Your goodness and your faithfulness is your character. It's your nature. It's who you are. You're not going to stop here. You're not going to stop if we get crushed again. Your faithfulness is always there. It's he's faithful. This isn't something new. God's providence, God's sovereign care isn't something that happened back then, but it's still happening today even over his people with favor. Our king is always working for our good. 
It's his character. And when you read verse 27, Ezra is saying, Glory to God! Glory to God! Verse 28, he says, And who? That's God. Extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. That's the letter. Meaning this, he says, meaning these blessings and all of these favors and all these things that you have given and done for us and, and what we're going to see in the future, God, they are all real physical evidences that you love us. They're marks of your love. And you've shown us your love in these things. There are so many real physical evidences of the love of God toward us. The beauty of nature, his sovereign protection from nature, his provision, his relationships, marriage and family, the church. These are all ways that God has shown his steadfast love to us. All the many blessings that we can't count. These are God's love toward us. But most notably, God's steadfast love that we experience and that we know and we feel and we taste and we hear and we touch is the gospel. And this, when, that is where we experience the steadfast love of God. Ezra experienced God's love through what? The blessings of this king and deliverance of his people. And he understands this is God doing these things and the showering of wealth on them. However, we experience God's love through the deliverance of our sins and his steadfast love to us through the lavished grace of Christ Jesus, his forgiveness, this new life, and for the forgiveness of sins, his adoption into his family, and the renewal of our minds through the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit that's at work in us every day, even right now, telling you, listen up, you're a son, you're not a slave. Listen, you're not a slave every day pounding us with the word to remind our hearts that are so tempted to fear and to give up and to quit and to give in to sin because it feels better. But God is showing us that your sons, you're not slave. His steadfast love is ever before us. The cross is God's love on display for sinners. And when you dwell upon the cross, when you think about how Christ became a curse in order that we might be redeemed and reconciled and forgiven, what does that do? It draws us in. Like catching a big fish and hooking them and pulling them in. Sometimes we resist. But he's going to get you. He draws us in. And when he draws us in, we come with gratitude and we come with thankfulness do you know what the greatest enemy of gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord is circumstances 
loss, pain, hurt, suffering, trials, other people? No. The greatest enemy to gratitude and thankfulness is your sin. It's my sin. Paul Tripp says, sin causes us to insert ourselves into the center of our worlds, making life all about us. That's self-focused. That's self-centeredness. And in this self-focus, we are motivated by what we want and how we feel and what we think our greatest need is. And so in that hunger and that desire to fulfill that self, that self-fulfillment, we see all of life from that posture, from that posture of what we do not have and what we think that we, we need. And then we completely miss the blessings that we do have. And we forget the gospel. Self-focus brings us to be slaves to sin. Slaves to sin of comparing. We become the scorekeepers of what we have compared to what other people have. From time to talents to money, possessions, health, wealth, fame. And jealousy and envy always destroys Sin causes us to look horizontally what should be found vertically. Looking to creation for life, hope, peace, rest, contentment, identity, meaning, and purpose, inner peace, and motivation will always continue when looking horizontally for fulfillment and joy. And what we begin to realize when we live horizontally all the time that we find that there is no life there, that there is no joy there, there is no meaning, there is no hope, there is no peace. All of creation, everything from family to possessions and creation itself, everything, all of creation has only one purpose to it, and that is to point us vertically to God, who is the creator and sustainer and giver of life and for us to give him glory. A lack of gratitude and thankfulness is a joyless life. See how deceived and distorted and even subtle sin carries our hearts to worshiping and depending the good gifts instead of the giver himself. But when our hearts are filled with gratitude and thankfulness, because it is the Lord himself in whom we delight. Then like Ezra, we could take courage and obedience. He saw clearly that God's hand was on him and he was obedient to share and to gather others to go with him. Vertical gratitude and thankfulness fans the flames of courage and boldness and obedience to the gospel. I want to close with this, and it's going to be kind of a longer closing, but I want to turn it around for just a moment of what we see in this text. Here we see how government officials, treasuries, resources, public authorities are now being leveraged for the kingdom of God. 
The whole secular system was being bent toward the building up of God's people. For all of our lives, we ourselves have existed under a constitutional government that recognized that God has given certain rights to people. And one of those inalienable rights is the right to gather and to assemble peaceably and worship according to our beliefs, whatever they may be, according to your beliefs. We know throughout history it has not always been perfect, and I don't think they claim to be perfect. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said uh, that we would strive to be a more perfect union. But in the United States, overall, we have experienced, I think, the greatest religious freedom and favor this world has ever known. Government is given by God. This is one of the gifts of, from God to the world for the good of human flourishing and for the restraint of evil. But often, as we have seen throughout history, that authority has been abused, has been abused to empower evil. We know from the scriptures that the, the, in history that the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. The nations in the promised land continue to attack and raid and oppose the Jews in the promised land. The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. And the Babylonians decimated Judea and Jerusalem, exiling the Jews from the promised land. However, was God not then sovereign over those nations or those leaders? Could not God have given those leaders favor in the eyes of, uh, uh, in their eyes of Israel? Of course. The Lord is sovereign. Because in fact it was the Lord who raised up those nations and those kings to judge his people and to show his power and his mighty hand to, and to everyone as he delivers them from the grip of this slavery and oppression. Even now, there still are governments that leverage their power for the destruction of the church and Christians. In China, the faithful church has to exist underground. They have to exist in secret, hiding, because they are worried about telling the Communist Party about their gatherings with other Christians. Fear of imprisonment, loss of life, loss of everything. And now technology is being used to spy on them. And with this new social credit score system that they have coming up online, it'll automatically detect who you're speaking with, who you're talking with, who are you being with. And when that happens, you lose a score. And as your score goes down, you lose your rights and your privileges to shop at certain stores, buy certain things, doing certain business, traveling, etc. Because something you said or you were seen talking to a known Christian. Same goes in the Middle East, parts of Africa where you can't gather and open because of the risk of being attacked, losing your job and family. And even now, for us Christians in the United States, if, if the trend of what has been taking place this year has shown us is that religious freedom in the United States will not only be attacked over and over, but it will be diminishing of the right of a Christian to even speak in public, to hold public office judicial office, or even the right to gather 
It's not even a guarantee. Religious liberty is being eroded. Here's what I'm getting at. When the government takes away tax exemption status of churches and all religious organizations, when cities will no longer zone locations or for buildings for churches to gather because there's way more money to make in the benefit of a restaurant or bar to open up in that particular place than they recognize the social benefit of the church in the city, when the sexual revolution and its equality rights supersede the rights of people to proclaim the gospel, to clearly preach against sin, and to allow or remove membership based upon our biblical convictions. Excuse me, I shouldn't have got loud there. When even gathering together, assembling, or even singing becomes prohibited. If those things or more becomes our reality or the reality of the generations to come, is God still not sovereign? Didn't think I was going to go that way, did you? Is God still not omnipotent? Is God still not gracious and so kind and so loving? and omnipresent, and omnibenevolent, and good. And is God still not, or is not the mighty hand of God still not with his people? You see, God is glorified when he shifts the hearts of these kings to be a blessing to his people, but God is also glorified when he takes these wicked people and he uses them even in those ways to be bad against his people. Because we still have a sovereign God and king who loves his people and still does his, is still is good for us. So how do we live as Christians and exist as a Christian community when it's not favor we receive, but hostility. Well, we do the same thing that Ezra did. Are we still only to be thankful and joyful and faithful and obedient and full of gratitude to the Lord, our Heavenly Father, in the favor and blessings only? Of course not. We live in times and places that the Lord has given us to live in as God has given Ezra to live in. We are not guaranteed favor from our leaders. We are not guaranteed authority in position like Ezra. Like Ezra, but in slavery or freedom, in oppression or liberty, we still enjoy the steadfast love of our Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus, and we recognize the mighty hand of our God. Can we worship as Job did after losing everything, family and all? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We live in gratitude and thankfulness as Peter and John, who were arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel, and they were thankful. And they rejoice to be counted worthy to be persecuted along with their Savior. 
You see, in the gospel, you see, the gospel works in each of our lives. Uh, our lives does exactly in us what it that did in the, uh, Ezra. It makes us courageous. If that is our foundation, that makes us courageous to live in the times that God has ordained for you and for me to live in. I want to close by reading Psalm 146. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to follow me. Psalm 146. It may be an encouragement to you as the word does for us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. Will sing praises to my God while I have been. Listen, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. Remember what I said? They burn up. The wealth of kings burn up. Verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. There should be some amens going on here. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. And we're so thankful we can end with Psalm 146. And I think it speaks for this morning as we close. That we reign forever. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your faithfulness has been to all generations, even to us. God, we give you the glory and we pray that you would help us to be faithful. Help us to have hearts of gratitude and thankfulness, always remembering the gospel. That it is your kingdom that we live for, not some earthly kingdom that dies with the plans of man, but the kingdom of God that will be forever and eternal as our king of kings reigns forever and ever. So may he be glorified and receive all the glory from his people this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.